0: This is Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls here today with series co founder and today's host, Suzanne Kreider. Hi, Suzanne. Hello, Paul. So, Suzanne comes to us with ideas about topics for Peace Talks Radio episodes once in a while. Generally, we seek out where there are conflicts in our society and take a deep dive into those areas and find out what the sources are for the conflict and what some of the solutions might be. Suzanne, tell the listeners what you came to us with this time.
1: I had both a professional and a personal interest in this issue of class warfare. And I'd heard a lot professionally about income inequality. So I wanted to look at that and see where the conflicts were, if they were internal, external, or both. This program is about economic classes. There are social classes, cultural, ethnic classes.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Who are we going to hear from?
1: We're going to hear from two different guests. And I like to say it's a huge topic. We cover very large issues on Peace Talks Radio. And we offer not a whole perspective, but a couple points of view. We're going to hear from a sociologist because I really wanted an historical view of what we're going through in terms of classes. And we're also going to hear from a person who makes a lot of money. And he is working to try to even out the economic viewpoints in the U.S.
0: Okay, and this is Nick Hanauer, who has set up an organization called Civic Ventures, a nonprofit organization that is looking deep into these issues, too. So we'll be interested in hearing from him later in the program. Who's our first guest?
1: Our first guest is a sociologist, Dr. Tina Wright. She teaches at L.A. Southwest College.
0: Here's Suzanne's conversation with Dr. Tina Wright.
1: Dr. Wright, I've spoken with several people about this class conflict issue, and some people say there is no conflict. To a sociologist, what would you say? Is there a conflict in the U.S. among classes? And if so,
2: how would you describe that conflict? There is definitely a social class conflict in the United States and everywhere around the globe, actually, so I'm not sure um, who believes there's no conflict. Um, When we look at objective reality, social facts, um, it plays out in many different ways. And I would say, you know, it comes down to who controls, who has control of resources, of systems, of structures. Um, They're able to make the rules and usually make the rules to benefit uh, themselves. And so, yes, um, according to, you know, in sociology, we discuss a lot about social facts, and there's just, you know, research uh, for... um, decades that show the different kinds of ways social class plays out in our lives and class conflict. Well,
1: Tina, is it natural to have these kinds of conflicts among classes? And it seems natural to have different classes.
2: So I would say that it's not natural. I do believe that there's a You know, self-interest aspect of society that you could call natural, that people want to make sure that, you know, survival instinct take care of themselves and the people around them. But class itself is is what we would call a social construct. Having and you know, economic systems that's a social construct, that's something we've created, and in creating it, we've created systems um, that basically are inherently unequal. So, for example, capitalism is a system of people owners versus those that work for them. And and that is an unequal relationship, unequal uh, control of resources. And so those are all social constructs. I would never call them natural. I do think that people have tendencies to uh, take care of self, self self-interest, and that part uh, would be uh, natural. But all the systems and structures we've created are basically, you know, social constructs that could have been created differently. How could they have been created? Well, we could have looked to what our values are. Do we want to value basically, you know, um, kind of uh, a cultural, um, ecological, uh, equitable, sustainable society and environment over things like you know, wealth, um, riches in terms of money, that type of thing. So it really comes down to values and what we value in society. And so, you know, we could create something very different if we switch our priorities and value things differently.
1: I know you're not an economist, you're a sociologist, but I'm curious, is it possible to really create an economic equality?
2: Yes, <laughs> I think that it's very difficult in more complex societies where you have so many different interests and and you have to kind of um, have people doing different types of work and jobs that will uh, not always seem equal. So, for example, a lot of times sociologists will discuss, you know, what doctors do and how they have to be trained versus a job that doesn't have the same amount of training. And so in there you get some inequality. But at the same time, the system itself can, you know, reward people that do different jobs similarly. So the fact that, you know, doctors or... Entertainers or whoever makes so much more money is re- really something that could be changed and, and, and created more equitably between societies so that it's not all kind of concentrated in the hands of a few, um, but uh, spread out more towards society. So when they look at maybe different countries, like comparing different countries, the level of inequality can be very different. So in some countries, you know, corporate... Um, managers and uh, CEOs don't make nearly as much as they do in comparison to the U.S. in terms of uh, compared to their workers. So that's one way that it can be changed. Like, you know, we can have workers making um, as much or similar to who supposedly is the CEO of the company. Those are just things that, again, are value systems. And are we going to put the effort into making excuse me, into making those type of equitable decisions.
1: Dr. Gray, let me give you three possibilities of how this conflict is experienced. It could be felt internally only, or it could be expressed externally, or it could be both, internal and external. What do you think?
2: Well, class conflict is felt and expressed in, um, both external and internal ways. Um, in sociology, we would call it kind of internalization, um, people feeling, becoming, um, uh, stuck in situations and not really knowing how to get out of them and and not having kind of the resources to. And so in that way, it can be considered uh, internal. But I would focus much more kind of on the external ways that we see social class affected in our lives. And we see it, you know, every day when we see poverty and homelessness and and those with, you know, not uh, having to worry about material resources versus those that can barely uh, sustain themselves day to day. And, you know, it plays out in other ways. Um, We see the system through things like scapegoating, trying to maintain this type of situation where blame is put on certain groups um, instead of really the structural systems that have created it. So, you know, there's different ways that... Class conflict plays out, we can see it as, you know, come to even violent conflicts. Um, we can see it in, as I said before, internalization. We can see it in really the way that uh, most people are experiencing their material reality. Yes,
1: I've never thought of conflict as things like poverty and homelessness, but that is an external expression. I'm not seeing people fighting on the street like that kind of violence in the U.S. Do you think that's going to happen?
2: I do think that it's always a possibility if people get desperate enough and so basically you know conflict theory social conflict theory um, discusses kind of just like um, competition over resources and in this case resources that are controlled and hoarded by a very small percentage can lead to an unsustainable underclass so Yes, it is always possible. I have been reading and researching and seeing a lot of think tanks looking for alternatives because they know the system as it is right now in terms of inequality is unsustainable. So they're looking towards things like, you know, worker cooperatives and ways to um, make the economic systems and the social systems more equitable and more controlled by uh, more people instead of just the, you know, 1% or very few.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's the solution you mentioned, like cooperatives, or make things more equitable. Are there other things that individuals can do? I'm thinking like our listeners, is there anything they can do to help bring about solutions?
2: Absolutely. So in my class, I've, you know, uh, developed an applied learning portfolio where I'm teaching students advocacy skills. And so for every listener, advocacy is critical. And you can do it in many different ways. Also supporting what supports you and what supports the kind of system you want to see. And Divesting from those that don't, that's also critical. Um, Really organizing. Organize, organize, organize. If you're not part of some organization, uh, join one. Make sure you also follow other organizations and support the work they do because that's where we're going to see uh, the transformation of social structures and systems that aren't benefiting everyone and that um, exasperate social inequality and class conflict.
1: Tina, what are a few examples of uh, organizations people can join?
2: So there are hundreds, thousands, national, local. Um, I would start with local, having maybe one local and one national one. Um, I'll just speak to myself. I can use some examples that I have. So locally around where I work, um, there's a a organization called Community Coalition that serves South Los Angeles. I became a member of that and have been, you know, following the work they do. Um, I also have joined uh, a black cooperative movement called SEEM. Um, and so that way, that's also local for where I live. And we're basically trying to build more uh, cooperatives in the area that I live in. Um, nationally, you know, depending on your interest, there's so many uh, different organizations that you can be a part of. I've uh, chosen, you know, a few um, Association of Black Sociologists for my profession, but I'm also on the board of Hip Hop Congress, which basically looks at issues of uh, social engagement engagement, civic engagement, social activity, activism through a hip-hop lens. And so there are just a number. It really depends on what you want to focus on. Uh, one of the ones that deals with inequality and specifically how it's been racialized is um, Color of Change. That's uh, doing some really good work in media. And there's just a list of them. <laughs> I could give more, but I would tell everyone to kind of start with the local organization and then also a few national ones that you follow support through petitions that type of thing I know
1: there's lots of intersectionality dr. Wright with class ethnicity gender and so it's kind of a confusing topic I sat next to a guy on a plane a few weeks ago I was reading a book called white fragility and he said oh I hate identity politics (laughs) Because that really pushes us apart and creates conflict.
2: What's your response? That is actually not what pushes us apart. (laughs) Those that control everything and have others, you know, basically surviving, trying to make ends meet uh, is what pushes us apart. Uh, Racism pushes us apart. Sexism pushes us apart. Homophobia pushes us apart. Um, I would say that, you know, everyone has an identity, but sometimes the mainstream, um, those that have been, Centered, don't actually see their identity. If anything, if I look at the politics now, a lot of identity, white identity, is being used in the way of white nativism and that type of stuff. They just don't call it identity politics because they've had the benefit of being centered. And so, you know, what I would say is basically everyone has some identity, and if you look at intersectionality, it makes sense to understand that for example, maybe a middle-class black woman and a um, poor black woman—they might have the blackness and womanness uh, in common, but their experiences might be very different based on their class perspective. So, so inter- uh, intersectionality is really an important theoretical lens in order to really understand people's experiences, how we, how our lived experiences matter, and how they're very different depending on these different identities.
1: Tina, Karl Marx talked about conflict theory. He said it's never-ending and that workers are always going to be revolting against that person in power. And then when they get in power, they'll have workers who revolt against them. He also said it would take really dramatic change to make an economy that works for everybody. So what's your response to that theory?
2: I do think that the, that there is something to the struggle continues continuously because there's always going to be the possibility that some will, you know, want to have more power, uh, be more greedy that type of thing. But, you know, Marx also talked about really the importance of consciousness, class consciousness, and understanding uh, the system. And the more conscious we are about it, the more empowered we become. And so I do feel like it can change. Um, It has changed. It will continue to change. It will evolutionary, uh, you know, will uh, continue changing. But, Uh, to get to where we want to get to it will have to be very transformational so you know the economic systems that we know today just will not ever show us the type of equity that we want to see and so we do need to move towards things like cooperatives and so on
1: how is class consciousness going to keep changing and what can our listeners do to make it change
2: I use this example in class often. I talk about, you know, Walmart and the Waltons and how, you know, they take up a few spots on the top uh, riches of this country list. But I, you know, give my students this understanding that without the workers that make the products, the uh, work, workers that work at the Walmarts or... You all that shop there, there is no Walmart. So that's the consciousness I'm talking about, understanding that it really is us. There is just us, in other words. And so when we come more to that understanding and, and, and understand our power in the system, that's the way that we'll get to where we want to get to.
1: Like um, protesting in the streets, making noise.
2: When it's necessary to protest, we protest. But I think also the daily choices we make in terms of what we invest in, divest in, where we put our energy, who we organize with, who we support in terms of organizations, all of that will uh, create the change we want to see. But yeah, mass mobilization is definitely a big part of it and has uh, brought us some of the changes that we've been able to experience.
0: More from Suzanne Kreider's interview with sociologist Dr. Tina Wright of LA Southwest College as we continue to discuss economic class conflict today on Peace Talks Radio. More after a break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, who's looking at the problem of economic class conflict and possible solutions. Later, a self-described proud capitalist, Nick Hanauer, who's advocating for an end to the huge income disparity in the US. But now back to Suzanne's conversation with sociologist Dr. Tina Wright of LA Southwest College.
1: I think about the people in power and people who have maybe opposing views to people who are protesting, what's it going to take for all of us to collaborate peacefully?
2: In terms of class conflict, I think what it one of the things that will take is, you know, really dealing with issues of white supremacy and stuff like that in our society because basically ninety five plus percent of this country in particular, are of kind of um, working, class, you know, just living day to day. And the wealth is concentrated in the hands of very, very few. But we're unable to organize Organized because of issues across, you know, things like I said, racism, sexism, homophobia, those type of things. So when we deal white supremacy, so when we deal with those things, and really, you know, root them out, we can then start to build a class consciousness, consciousness across those identities. But until then, basically, we're going to be uh, pitted against one another, there'll be groups scapegoated, um, and that's going to, you know, that's kind of uh, what the elite use in order to kind of keep power. So if we want to we want to get more power out of the hands of the elite and spread it more evenly across society, we're going to have to organize uh, not only just our groups, but all groups that have that in common.
1: So it's important to organize. And is there anything else that can help kind of like deconstruct the white supremacy?
2: I do believe that a lot of the work that needs to be done is in people that have benefited from um, not just white supremacy, but kind of denial. So I don't know if you've read. I mean, most people and many of your listeners have probably read James Baldwin's The Fire Next Time. And in there basically, you know, talks about that until we, you know, consciously understand that um, and work together, we're not going to be able to uh, overcome this nightmare of our history. So we have to, one, accept history uh, and then go from there to build a new uh, society, And so I just don't, I believe that it's not really up to the oppressed, like whether it's class oppressed and so on, but it's for those that have uh, benefited from the system as is, the status quo. Are they ready for, to, to be more just, to be more equitable, or are they going to hold on and, and, and uh, to power by any means necessary and that possibly destroy the country?
1: Tina, it seems like there's not one view of like how the economy in the US is right now. I'm seeing socially some people say, "Oh yeah, the economy's really great." Other people say, "Oh, the economy's really bad." Do you think a person's view of how the economy is is really impacted by the class they're in?
2: It is impacted, but also what in sociology we would discuss is probably subjective versus objective reality. So everybody has a subjective sense of, you know, where they are, how the economy is working for them, and so on. But if you look at kind of the objective reality data, you see things like income inequality growing, many people living in uh, below the poverty line, uh, homelessness becoming increasing, all of those type of objective social facts. And it's up to us to kind of go beyond what our subjective, you know, how it's working for us in the world and seeing the uh, bigger picture to see if the economic system is actually working. As I've said before, of course, it works for some. It works. It doesn't work for others. But, um it becomes unsustainable when it only works for a very few and the mass majority are are barely surviving. So I do believe that there is a subjective understanding of the uh, economy. If you you know own a company and it's doing very well and you're making a, a lot of money, for you the economy is doing well. If you are working two, three jobs and barely making ends meet, the economy is not working for you.
1: That objective reality is a tough one, though, because it seems like it depends on the media. I can walk around and see there is more homelessness. However, if I come in and listen to the news, I won't say who I listen to, (laughs) Um, that media may not be telling me objective reality. What do you think the impact of the media is on people's ideas of class conflict?
2: Well, media is actually what I've been focusing uh, mostly on in my uh, later career here because I think it is becoming the most powerful social institution that we have to deal with. And I say often in my class that the media does not reflect reality, it creates it. So depending on how they frame this story or how they frame the narrative will depend on if you believe the economy is doing well or not. Despite that, so in many ways, the media is still subjective reality. It's subjective to who produces it, what they want to focus on, uh, what their um, listeners or viewership is, that type of thing. It's still very subjective. Objective reality is more like this. Um, Are people dying from hunger, you know, and then quantifying that? Um, Is there poverty? Are, is there social inequality? Is there income inequality? And a lot of people that, you know, aren't personally affected may argue, oh, you know, there isn't that. But the, if you step back and you do the research, sociology does it all the time. Sociologists does do it all the time. There is data behind all of these things that create that show us what the actual objective reality is.
1: Yes, and if people are not personally impacted, oftentimes they're just taking care of themselves. I do this too. So what can we do to help people who are not personally impacted feel the pain?
2: <laughs> um Feel the pain, I'm not sure, but <laughs> to understand the that they are going to be impacted <laughs> is what we have to work on. People feel like they're not impacted, but in many ways it's all connected and sooner or later they'll feel the impact as well. And so I think we need to really, you know, drive home that message. I also, you know, would have to say it's a moral one. What kind of world do you want to live in? What kind of society do you want to live in? Is the society as we see it... Uh, today, whether you're impacted or not, is that what you want to see? If you're driving in your car and you're seeing a lot of people homeless on the street, are you okay with that? So there's a lot of moral questions that people have to ask themselves. And if they're not okay with it, then the next question and, and what I ask my students all the time is, what are you doing? If everyone had an answer to that question, we'd be further along than we are in terms of social change. So just, you know, really ask yourself, what do you want to see and what are you doing? Doing to,
1: to get there. Dr. Wright, a person as an individual can strive for different things. They can strive to make money or they can strive to be free or happy, strive for time. What should a person strive for in the U.S.?
2: I believe we all, here and everywhere, should strive for self-determination, meaning we are not impacted by, you know, systems and structures that either constrain or or benefit us. But basically, we're able to create the life that we want for ourselves, for, for our families, and for our communities and large societal community as well. And so for me, self-determination is it, if you feel like you're self-determined, that you're able to really... Um, um, freedom is something that, you know, you feel when you're self-determined. And so I do think that self-determination is what I believe we should all strive for. Um, and that's different than self-interest and so and it's also different than self-preservation. And so to understand the difference is going to be kind of key. A lot of people are already living in kind of self-interest and self-preservation Mindsets, but self determination is much more intentional, is much more intentional and also um, more about power, control, um, and controlling your destiny.
1: Self determination sounds great, and I also know I'm impacted by society. So, society tells me, Oh, you should have a partner, or you should have a job, or you should make this amount of money. Isn't society telling us? a lot of the things we should do and be
2: yes society is but if I am going to refer to a picture that I have on my front page of uh, my class um, that says basically we blame society but we are society and so again it's to kind of understand how social constructs how we can how we've created the society that we've have and how we need to empower ourselves to change that and so yes society has a lot of uh structural um implications in terms of what we can do what we can't do and so on but all of those are not um uh, built in stone they're not things that can't be changed and there, you know, we've seen already how many have changed and how, how we're living through some transformative change now and how it will continue to.
1: Tina, what are your tips for self-determination?
2: Definitely one of them is being much more intentional about your social network and um, your support system. Also investing in those that support your vision and divesting from those that do not. Um, Controlling as much of the narrative as possible. And when you don't control the narrative, having a um, lens to be able to really understand it. So I teach a lot of media literacy. So what you don't control being very literate about framing and think critically about Uh, What you're being given through media, through political institutions, all of that. So, you know, critical thinking, media literacy, investing in what actually supports uh, your values in terms of, you know, equity and so on and divesting from those that don't. It
1: also seems like it courage would be important or something that courage some, some yeah, some inner strength because it's kinda like we're salmon swimming
2: upstream. Right. Courage is critical. I believe courage is critical. I think a lot of you know what stops people from being able to really actualize uh, some of what they want to see is being afraid of change possibly, but also being afraid of losing what they do have. And so, yeah, it does take some courage. You have to live much more fearless. Um, uh, fear basically, you know, can, can stop you from progressing. And so I agree. I believe that um, courage is critical.
1: Dr. Gray, what else do you want to say about class conflict that you haven't said yet?
2: It's not new and it's not, you know, just in our economic system here in this country, but it is also not necessary. And, um, and so thinking bigger, having a vision for um, a society that values everyone, that everyone is able to Uh, live and survive and not have to worry about uh, their material needs um, is something that can be created by us for us. And so class conflict, until we do that, will continue, (laughs) but we can build that.
0: We link to writings by Dr. Tina Wright on our website, peacetalksradio.com. You can also hear Suzanne Kreider's complete interview with her there. Look for our September 2019 episode on addressing economic class conflict. Nick Hanauer is next, the well-off capitalist who hosts the podcast Pitchfork Economics and advocates for higher pay for American workers and less income disparity in the U.S. That's when Peace Talks Radio continues after this break. It's Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider, addressing economic class conflict. Suzanne next talks with Nick Hanauer, a self-described, quote, proud and unapologetic capitalist who's becoming a leading critic on income inequality and modern economic policy. He's also the host of the weekly podcast Pitchfork Economics. Suzanne asked Nick Hanauer how he sees the economic class conflict in the U.S. and what might be done about
3: it. I think you'll find plenty of evidence that there's class conflict, uh, both in the United States, but you can see it unfolding around the developed world, the rise of right-wing populism, the extraordinary um, polarization in our politics today, the clashes between right-wing and left-wing. And, uh, you know, I think it's really, really obvious that People are mad around the world, and they're mad because a few people have won over the last 40 years, and pretty much everyone else has been left behind. And that objective economic reality is becoming more and more obvious to people, and uh, they're re- they're understandably resentful of that circumstance.
1: You wrote an article for Politico, and we'll link that on our website. It's called "The Pitchforker Coming." for us plutocrats. Two things. What's a plutocrat? And what, what did you mean by that article?
3: Well, a plutocrat is, I suppose, um, you know, broadly speaking, uh, the relatively small group of people uh, in the Western world and the United States who who have enormous amounts of wealth and influence on the, you know, and, and th- that wealth, of course, buys influence on the society. And I think it's it's well documented today that, you know, a very small minority of people uh, make the overwhelming, you know, comprise the overwhelming majority of um, sort of political contributions and and therefore comprise, you know, the majority of the influence on the political system. And so to me, you know, that those are those are the plutocrats. Mm -hmm. I wrote the article because it seems very clear to me then and even more clear to me now that uh, there is no example in human history when wealth and power concentrate in the way that they have in our country, that it doesn't end badly for everyone, including the people at the very tippy top. And uh, I think if we want to avoid either a police state or a revolution or both. We need to find a way to build an economy that benefits everyone, not just the very wealthy.
1: And Nick, you founded lots of companies, you've invested in lots of companies. I have. Yeah, and you were the first non-family investor in Amazon. I was. Yeah, you're a capitalist, you have all this money. So why do you care? Because you could just jump on your Gulfstream and fly away.
3: Yeah, it's actually a Falcon 2000, but- Oh, okay. (laughs) <laughs> Falcon 900 come to think of it um
1: but you could just fly away yeah
3: yeah I could fly away uh it, you know I I can't answer that question successfully because I can't psychoanalyze my you, to, to really successfully answer that question you probably have to talk to my mom <laughs> <laughs> uh, to understand my deepest motivations it's just super obvious that at current course and speed, the country is headed for disaster. I prefer not to live in a country that is uh, as polarized and as angry as the one that we have today. I think it's funner to live in a society where everybody is doing well and is happy and That feels more like a party, and today it feels a little bit like living at a funeral. (laughs) And so, you know, out of a, I suppose, a mixture of both a sense of civic responsibility and social responsibility and a reasonable view about self-preservation, this just seems like a really important fight to be engaged in and to win.
1: Well, I'm gonna call you a rich person, so I don't know how you feel about that. But do other other rich people agree with you?
3: Some, yeah, hmm. sure. A, a growing number of rich people agree with me. Hmm. Um, when I first started talking about economic inequality more than ten years ago, it made almost everyone I knew angry because it felt like an attack that seemed to them unfair. But today, you know, I think. Most reasonable wealthy people acknowledge that economic inequality, growing economic inequality is a, cha- is a problem and that we have to find ways to address it. And there are a bunch of other wealthy people who are working hard to try to change these dynamics. My friend Paul Tudor Jones spun up an organization called Just Capital Chris Hughes, one of the Facebook founders, is actively working to try to address these issues. Uh, You know, there's a ton of very wealthy people who are working hard to try to change this, but it's certainly not the majority. And it's the economic policies that have produced these outcomes are deeply entrenched, and it will take a lot of time and a new political consensus to change them.
1: Our program is about peace, Peace Talks Radio. So we want to ask you about peaceful solutions. So you mentioned starting an organization when your friends did that. What else are some other possible peaceful solutions?
3: Well, democracy is a peaceful solution to society's problems. You know, democracy is the best way that human societies have yet found to adjudicate their differences. And uh, the American people need to come together and elect representatives that will represent, that will truly represent their economic interests. And the truth is that over the last 40 years, for bad and some you know good i wouldn't call them good reasons but at least not nefarious reasons both political parties in our country were hijacked by neoclassical economic thinking and neoliberalism and it was not just republicans and conservatives but democrats also who enacted economic policies that enriched the few and impoverished the many president obama had a uh, strong majorities at the beginning of his first term he could have doubled the minimum wage but he chose not to he could have raised the overtime threshold but chose not to he could have given unions more power by helping to reform our labor laws but chose not to that there are i could i could list a hundred things I, and i am a democrat but our party was captured by these neoliberal ideas too. And as a consequence, we enacted as a democracy policies that made rich people richer and everybody else poorer, while being told by academic economists that it was all going to work out and everybody was going to be better off, which turned out to be either just wrong or a lie. We have now dug ourselves a deep hole and we're going to have to dig our way out. And that will require a new kind of economic and political thinking but there's no reason that th- that transition from a neoliberal world to a better world need be violent we can very easily simply elect sensible people who will raise labor standards and tax rich people appropriately and reform our healthcare system so it's not just one giant price fixing scheme these transitions do not have to be violent they're common sense and uh, they are broadly popular, and we just have to go get it done.
1: Right. And when you say elect sensible people, I've heard a lot that politics is run by wealthy people, even the Democrats. Is that true?
3: Um, you know, I, I, I'm of two minds about that. Uh, I, I, I am a very large political giver, but these guys will never do what I want them to do. <laughs> <laughs> so (laughs) yeah people um, are like that yeah (laughs) so um so i mean there it, it is undeniable that money has a huge influence on politics uh but at the end of the day we still have a functioning democracy and if ordinary people uh make their voices heard they will get the democracy that they want and I, I I often am challenged uh, in the way, you know, in the way that you just have. And having worked on the front lines of this fight for a decade, what I think is really important for folks to understand is that even the people they thought were on their side got confused about economics and economic policy, that even— Democrats who theoretically should have been on the side of workers really did believe because they took economics courses in college, which taught them this, that if you raised wages, it killed jobs and that therefore to raise the minimum wage, for for example, threatened the health of the economy. And that turns out to be a straight up lie. That's just objectively false. But it is what people were taught in school for a really long time Mm -hmm. and 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 so you know like so to a certain extent i have seen the enemy and it is us Mm. (laughs) you know so we all sort of collectively deserve blame for that i I mean you may or may not know but i was part of the gang of people who did the 15 dollars minimum wage and when we first started talking about that in 2012 Even the people on our side thought we had lost our minds. So there's a lot more that can be done if people just think about the problems in the right way.
1: And the minimum wage you're talking about, the $15 was in Seattle, correct?
3: Well, the $15 minimum wage started in Seattle, but now affects 30 million, 40 million workers it's law of the land in california and new york state and (laughs) washington state and and a whole bunch of other places we have taken that policy idea and propagated it across the country Um, but my point being that all of the academic economists whether they were whether they were right-leaning or left-leaning thought that if you imposed a 15 dollar minimum wage that Seattle, among other things, would fall into the Pacific Ocean. It's just not true.
1: You host a podcast called Pitchfork Economics. I do. So what is Pitchfork Economics? And explain how wealthy people do not run the economy.
3: Yeah, so Pitchfork Economics is is our team's podcast devoted to explaining to folks how economics really works uh, and You know, the point is that if you don't get economics right, the pitchforks come out. And so we have sort of laid out all of the economic principles and ideas that frame up our understanding of how our capitalist economy does or should work. And we're just trying to explain to people where we went wrong and how we can set it right and build a market economy that benefits everybody, where everybody wins when the economy wins.
1: Yeah, and explain how the wealthy people don't keep things running. Because many people believe that. Oh, yeah, well, the wealthy people will keep everything going.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, that's not true. You know, an economy is like uh, an ecology, and you could analogize to lions. Like, so lions are king of the jungle, and it's convenient and easy to believe that they're the most important things in that ecology because they sit at the top. And this would be very sad, but if all the lions in the world went extinct, uh, the world's ecosystems would continue to survive. But the thing that it's is at the bottom of that food chain are plankton, and if all the plankton die, then we're all dead, right? And and a human economy is much like that. Yes, there are rich people who play an important role, perhaps in running a company or whatever it is, but it but. It's the middle class that makes the economy go, because if people don't buy stuff, then no one makes stuff. And if no one makes stuff, then there's no jobs. And so the true job creators in a market economy are middle class consumers. And when they thrive, that's the thing that drives business. So the most pro-business thing you can do as a matter of policy in a market economy is ensure that middle class families are doing well.
1: And Nick, because I know you've worked on the front line for over a decade, I'm curious how you did that. Because when I told people, hey, I'm going to interview a wealthy person for this program, class conflict, oh my gosh, I got like eye rolling, face crunching, and worse. So there's a lot of 99 percenters who hate wealthy people, yeah, which is confusing. It's confusing. It's like, because our culture says, oh, you should be rich. So tell me a few things you did to collaborate with people who have like different values, different incomes. What'd you do?
3: Well, I mean, I stopped running companies and I started uh, devoting all of my time and energy and resource to civic, political, and philanthropic stuff. And so I don't run companies anymore. I run an, I run a civic enterprise called Civic Ventures. And so all I do is work on these things. So the $15 minimum wage is an example of one of the things that we work on. Um, The overtime threshold is another key part of our activities right now. Uh, My team runs all the gun violence politics in the state of Washington. We work on homelessness and housing affordability and all sorts of other stuff like that. So that's just what I do now. It's my job. So you don't get angry at these
1: people who are saying, no, we shouldn't do that. Angry at who? Like other wealthy
3: people or... Oh, I get super angry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get very angry at them. (laughs) (laughs) I definitely get angry a lot. (laughs)
1: So what do you do when you get angry?
3: Uh, I beat them.
1: Oh, you beat them. Yeah.
3: I beat them. Not
1: physically,
3: I run campaigns and beat them. Yeah. yeah. I'm really good at that. Okay. Yeah. So,
1: yeah you're the winner. <laughs>
3: yeah. Like I got a lot of my friends got really mad at us when we passed the $15 minimum wage.
1: And what would you tell our listeners? Like our listeners are saying, well, what can I do? What would you tell our listeners they should be
3: doing? Be involved. Be involved. Like there's 10,000 things to be involved in. Like... Every single one of your listeners should be involved in a local, uh, uh, in in a local political um, uh, uh, project, whether it's raising the minimum wage, or raising the overtime threshold, or reducing gun violence, or paid family leave, or reforming our health care system. There's ten thousand things that need doing. Every single one of those projects needs help and volunteers. Be involved. Put your shoulder to the wheel. That's what democracy requires.
1: Okay. What if they get bummed out and they're like, no, this isn't working. I give up.
3: Don't be a whiner. (laughs) I have no sympathy. Like, uh, yeah, of course it's hard and frustrating. Yeah, that's just, that's life. Get going. I, I have no sympathy for whiners. I'm sorry. Okay. Just like, just do it.
1: Yes. Hey, I saw you on YouTube on BBC Hard Talk. Yes. And you said... "Quote: Aspiration without legitimate opportunity creates anger, resentment, and violence." End quote. But, That's right. Okay, but don't people in the U.S. have a legitimate opportunity? They can work hard. They can make lots of money.
3: Not really. <laughs> I mean, of course, it's a relative. On a relative basis, we have more opportunity here in the United States than. Uh, the folks do in uh, the Congo, (laughs) or um, or Haiti. Uh, But the truth is that our individual opportunity is framed by the structures of society and the farther apart you stretch the rungs of opportunity, the harder it is for folks to move up that ladder. And so when When CEO pay, for instance, was 30 times the median worker's salary, uh, it was materially easier to move from working class to middle class to wealthy than it is when CEO pay is 500 times the median worker's pay, because obviously you have to move much farther. And So, you know, one of the most uh, insidious parts of neoliberalism as an ideology is, has been the way in which it has persuaded people that if you are poor, it is 100% your fault. (laughs) That if you are struggling, it's only because you're not working hard enough. That in fact, it has nothing to do with the fact that your employer has power and has set your salary at a low level, and you have no power and no ability to negotiate a different arrangement. And that's the problem in the United States of America is that folks aren't paid enough. And they're not paid enough because they, they're not worth more. They're not paid enough because they don't have the power to negotiate more. And that is the thing, that's the nut that we need to crack.
1: Hmm. And how do we do that?
3: Politics, being involved, organization, building power. Nick,
1: you believe the
3: middle class is going to maybe
1: disappear and the economy is going to be like feudal, like it was before the French Revolution. But I'm confused because I see lots of middle class people and I'm thinking how they can disappear. Not them, but the middle class disappear. So please define how much a person makes if they're in the middle class and how it's all going to disappear?
3: So that's a super fair question, and I should be able to answer it incredibly precisely, but cannot. But what I can tell you is that if you were to Google uh, the size of the middle class, what you will see is that over the last 40 years, it has materially shrunk in size, that our country is becoming... Dramatically less middle class is becoming a country where there are few rich people and a ton of poor people. So a much higher proportion of our country are poor today and lower proportion are middle class than there w- there once was. And if you simply assume that the current trends continue, if you just do that, uh, then you will find that the middle class will in fact disappear and that it will be a country of just a few rich people and all poor people. So in 1980 the top 1% had 8% an 8% share of national income. By 2007 it had risen to 23%. In 2008 the t- the bottom 50% of Americans had an about an 18% share of national income. By 2007 it had shrunk to 12%. So that's what I mean when I say the middle class is disappearing.
1: Yes. And people can strive for different things, like I could strive for money or relaxation, time, love and happiness, like Al Green said. So what should a person strive for in the US?
3: Should strive for whatever uh, We should have an economy that allows people to strive for whatever they want. And certainly, we don't all have to be money grubbing uh, Wall Street executives. We, we wanna have an economy where no matter what profession you choose, you should be able to live in dignity and security. Whether that's being a barista, or being a doctor, or an EMT, or uh, working uh, in a store, whatever it is. Everyone should have uh, both the opportunity and the right to live in security and dignity. And our market economy will support that despite what my friends at the Chamber of Commerce may tell you.
1: Nick, what else do you want to say about class conflict that you haven't said?
3: Uh, you know, I think that the reciprocity norms that both social cohesion and democracy depend on are being shredded by rising inequality. And our problem isn't a political, although it feels that way today. Our problem is economic. Uh, People are not going to feel better unless they do better, and they're not going to do better unless they are paid more. And that's the bottom line. And we have to find ways to change our economic policies so everyone in the country feels like they are uh, uh, successfully participating in the economy and are enfranchised. And when we do that, we're going to have a great country and a great economy and a great future.
0: We have a link to Nick Hanauer's Pitchfork Economics podcast, plus a link to the entire Suzanne Kreider interview with him and with Tina Wright, other links to Tina Wright's websites as well, all at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Also, there are photos, partial transcripts, other resource links, and on our front page, a donate button that puts you in the loop to keep our radio program and podcast and our nonprofit effort here at Good Radio Shows Incorporated going strong. Support also comes from KUNM at the University of New Mexico, the Albuquerque Community Foundation Tides Fund, businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center and Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill, and individuals like you and like Betsy Christensen, who donated in the memory of her parents, John and Audrey, who happen to be my parents, too. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Allie Adelman composed and performs our theme music. For Suzanne Kreider, I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.